Good morning, everybody. So this morning we are continuing on with our Gifts of Grace teaching series. Today is the uh, second to last week in this series. We'll finish it next week. Uh, this is a series where we have spent nine weeks working through the nine fruit of the Spirit that Paul writes about in Galatians chapter nine, uh, chapter five, uh, because there's not nine chapters in Galatians. So that would be a giveaway that we weren't looking at the Bible, but we are. And this is what goes on the internet. Good. So, I just got back from Cuba like two days ago. So just, it's my fourth sermon. Here we go. All right. Hi. So we're in the Gifts of Grace teaching series. This is the second to last week. And so we're talking about the eighth fruit of the Spirit from Galatians chapter 5. And uh, we're going to bring the two verses up on uh, the screen. And I invite you to listen to God's word to us all today. By contrast, Paul writes, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against such things. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that no matter who we are or how we walk in here, we would hear your gospel, your good news, and it would speak to us all about the life we've been called to live. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so the eighth fruit of the Spirit, which we're talking about today, is gentleness. And I want to start with a confession. The confession is that when I outlined this sermon series many months ago, if I had to list from number one to number nine the order of the, the fruit of the Spirit that I was most excited about, coming in last place would be gentleness. I was just not the one, and you know, you might be going, well, that's immature. It may be, but I just feel like I need to let you know that. You can sit in my immaturity with me for a couple of minutes as we start. Gentleness is not a word I feel very drawn to. Uh, it's not something in my own mind or heart that I've ever been like, how do I just become more gentle every day? Every day, gentle. Right? I just, it's not how I'm wired. When I think about the things that I think about and pray for for my children, my two daughters, gentleness is something I can never remember praying for for them. Because I think that the world's hard. And I think that uh, words like strength and resiliency are words that I more feel drawn to uh, in terms of praying for them. Uh, I feel like gentleness is, a, is a, uh, a trait where you can get maybe pushed around at times. And so that was the um, way I was coming into uh, this week. But as I sat with this word and what it means, I have become convicted and convinced of how essentially important it is for me for us, and particularly at this time, the culture and the nation in which we live. And I want to take a few minutes that hopefully we can all enter into exactly what this means for us as we go forward this week. Okay. Now, the way that this sermon series has worked is that there's always uh, two parts to each of these nine sermons. The first part is that we need to define the word we're talking about. So that's what we're going to do first today. And the second part is, after we define it, how do we live it out? How, in this case, does gentleness become more and more a part of who we are? So first off, we're going to follow that pattern again today. Let's define it. What exactly does Paul mean when he talks about gentleness as the eighth fruit of the Spirit? 
Now, this is one of those words in the list that if you have a different translation of the Bible than the one we use here, or if you grew up and thought uh, that you would learn the fruit of the Spirit, but it sounded different the way you learned it, this is one of those words that there's some different translations, okay? So you may have learned that humility was a part of the fruit of the Spirit, and this would be a word that might be translated uh, humility instead of gentleness, or you may have heard meekness was a fruit of the Spirit. And I see some nods out there. Is that meekness is something that you may have learned. It's this eighth fruit of the Spirit. And different translators trying to translate this word that Paul writes from Greek. That's what he, the, the, first, the original language he wrote in was ancient Greek. So, gentleness, humility, meekness, they're all similar, but they're not the same. And these translators are trying to figure out what it means. The, the, the word that Paul writes in Greek is the Greek word proutes. Okay? I'm going to say that and get you to repeat it just so I know you're awake. Proutes. Let's say it like we mean it. I don't know if you mean it, but let's just say it that way. Proutes. Okay, so proutes is the word that he writes. And what the lexicon says is that proutes can't be translated with an exact one English word. But what it means, and it's important for you to know this, is that it means expressing power with reserve and gentleness. I'm going to say that again because it opens up what Paul's writing here when he says proutes. Expressing power with reserve and gentleness. Have you ever known anybody that that seems to describe? Have you ever met anybody that they just have kind of a, 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 a power, an aura to them? They kind of have kind of these gifts, but they don't flaunt it. They're not bombastic about it. There's a humility to them, even though what they do. That's kind of what Paul's trying to get at when he writes proutes. The person I thought about when I first read this word was Martin Luther King. Martin Luther King was accused by people of being at times, uh, he was accused of a lot of things, but he was accused at times of being too gentle, of it being a, a, a kind of weakness, that they were, we're going to stand up to this gross injustice that has been inflicted for centuries, uh, that it demands more of a response than nonviolence. But what, what King led all of us, of every race, uh, in trying to understand is that actually there is an incredible power in nonviolence. Nonviolence is not the act of being weak. In fact, it takes an incredible strength because what the civil rights movement did, whether it was a sit-in or a boycott or a march, is the civil rights movement was provoking uh, action around injustice. It was instigating conflict, right? They knew what they were doing. They were trying to engage in conflict around injustice, but when they were treated, whether it was dogs or hoses or beating or whatever it was, there was a sense that we are going to respond but with reserve and gentleness. There's a power we have and we choose how to use it and to not be treated the way that we have been treated exhibits a power that elevated this entire nation. It elevated the nation in which we live, but there was a power that all of us benefited from because of how it was used. That's, I think, what Paul's trying to get at. So to sit there and say nonviolence was weak is a, is a, was a complete misunderstanding. And the power exhibited in that changed us all forever, for the better. That's what Paul's trying to say, proutes, to exhibit strength with reserve and gentleness. So that's the definition. That's the first part we wanted to talk about. So the second part then is, so if that's the definition, if we understand it, how do we live that? How do we become more gentle? How does proutes become more and more a part of each of our lives? 
And what we've said throughout this series is that if it's going to become more and more a part of our lives, we've got to have more than just our own willpower to depend on, right? That if you and I leave here today going, right, Proutes, that's what it is. I get the definition. This is what I'm going to do. I've got a picture in my head of what it means. This week, I'm going to be gentle. You will not make it to lunch today. While that's still, like, our willpower is not enough because when someone cuts you off leaving the church here today, Proutes is probably not going to be the word on your lips that you're thinking, or it's definitely not going to be the word in your heart. Our willpower does not get us very far. And so the way that we cultivate gentleness can't be, that's the answer, so this is what I'm going to do. Rather, what we've talked about in this series is that to cultivate this fruit, we actually need to be aware of how do we receive it in order to reflect it. If we're aware, in our case, of this, how has God been gentle with you? How has God expressed power with reserve and gentleness to you, to your family, to us as a people? As Christians, that should not be hard for us to get to. Every week in this service, whether it's through song or through prayer or some other way, we invite you into a time of confession. And it's not going, hey, some of you may need this, right? We're not going like you, 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 you need to do it, but we don't want to single you out, so we'll all just sort of do it with you. What we say is, is that we are all people each and every day who fail to do what we know is right, and we continue to do that which we know is wrong. And our willpower and our knowledge is not enough to work our way out of that. But what we believe is that God's response to us in faith is a kind of gentleness, that God is not a God of karma. Karma is a logical way of thinking. But karma means that if I do bad things, bad things start happening to me. But if I do good things, rewards start happening to me. And that makes sense. And the Bible even says some things like that. You're going to reap what you sow. And we're like, yeah, that makes sense, right? If I do good things, good things are going to happen. But what we believe is that we don't worship a God of karma. We worship a God of grace. And that karma might be logical, but God has taken that logic and turned it on his head in Jesus. That God has taken it and said, no, when you mess up, it's not that bad things start happening to you. But if you do good, good things start happening to you. God's saying that when you are in faith, as we acknowledge our brokenness, that God is a God of second chances, third chances, fourth chances, fifth chances, and that when we are forgiven, God wipes the slate clean in our lives. It's, it's so amazing. That's what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John said. You know what? That is, that's gospel. That's good news. It's so much better than the logical way that this should work. God is, in a sense, through God's grace, what we were just seeing, amazing grace, God is gentle with us and with this world. God is power, ultimate power in God. But it's held with reserve and gentleness. How in your life has God been gentle? And as we can sit in that and reflect on that, we had 21 confirmants who were, we celebrated during our 9.30 service this morning, two of whom were baptized. We weren't celebrating them as they professed their faith publicly for the first time, going, congratulations, you're now going to be highly moral people. We were saying, we are excited for you because you know the God of grace. You know a God who is gentle, who loves you, who will pursue you over time and space, no matter how far you run away, and no matter how backwards your life might start looking, God never gives up on us. God is gentle, and how have we received that? And if we can be aware in confession in our own life of how good God has been to us, we will begin reflecting that in this world. Rather than gentleness is the word, and I need to do it because I achieve things, and I'm going to make the honor roll, and I'm going to get into this college, and I'm going to be gentle. It doesn't work like that. 
What I'd like to do for a couple of minutes, however, as we close, is I'd like to take a couple of minutes to think not just about how we do this as individuals or in our family, but I'd like to take a couple of minutes to reflect of how it is that we need to be exhibiting this in our nation right now. Because I don't know if you're aware of this, but today marks uh, a milestone. Today is the first Sunday when we are officially now less than a year from the election of 2020. Yay! (laughs) And if you think that there's a lot of negativity and divisiveness in our culture or in society or in the news today and all we hear about is the election, just wait, it's going to get worse. And based on the last election and based on what we've seen since then, I don't think it's going to magically feel different than a few years ago in terms of the spirit of things, in terms of the vitriol, in terms of the divisiveness. When it comes to politics right now, and especially when it comes to the church and politics, there's kind of two different camps. Uh, The first camp is those of you right now who are going, oh, don't do this. Please don't do this. Please don't go in this direction. The finance committee right now is going, we're still asking for pledges for 2020. Don't do this. Wait like four weeks or like 12 weeks or like four years. Like, don't do this now. Please don't do this because it's exhausting and I feel beaten up and I feel like this, that, that it gets me down and, and everything else. And, that, and I get that. I feel that a lot of the times too. That's real. It's like if we can just kind of hibernate for the next 12 months. And then there's the other camp. And the other camp, when it's like, let's talk about the re-election, are going, finally, we have been waiting for you to get into this. This is what we need to be talking about. This is what it's about. I've been waiting for when is our church going to like just go into this full bore. And your excitement is going to stay there until I, for the first time, disagree with whatever you think when you walk in the door, and then covenant becomes just another battleground for the ideological purity of whatever position people have. And then the first group comes back to me three weeks later, and it's like, we told you. We told you not to talk about this. We told you to leave this alone. But we can't. And the reason that I want to suggest we can't is because, and I've never ever said this on a Sunday before in my life, not just here, anytime, but I deeply believe that our nation needs our leadership right now. And I don't mean that melodramatically. I genuinely believe that. That our nation needs our leadership right now because you and I as people of faith have an opportunity to witness to a different way of doing things that our society is desperate for. You see, what happens is, and I think so much of the divisiveness, and it's not that we've never been divided in our country before, but some of the uniqueness of this time is what lies beneath the divisiveness. And David Brooks is one that writes about this. And Brooks says that, that some of what's going on and why we're so divided and why we can't talk and why there's no dialogue is he talks about the rise in our culture, not around politics, but what he calls extreme individualism. 
that this is now the mantra of how decisions are made, that this becomes the way that we position ourselves, right? Is that like you can't tell me and society can't tell me and the church can't tell me and my parents can't tell me what to think. I am my own person. I have my experiences that no one else does. I have my truth. I have my rights. I have my values. I have my way of looking at the world. And anything or anybody that disagrees with that, you just don't understand me and my truth and my experiences. And therefore, I have kind of a right to be able to just lob hand grenades at you because you don't understand truth as I understand truth. And both sides do it. The left and the right, I believe, are equally guilty of it. And the best that can take place when, when extreme individualism is the mantra and the decision-making process of our society, then no wonder we're in this time where everyone, as one sociologist writes, are in echo chambers of their own self-righteousness and just lobbing hand grenades at anybody that feels or acts or professes something differently. You know the best that can be offered under extreme individualism, the best hope we have for getting along? I read this blog post the other day, is we just need to learn to get along and to, 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 to tolerate each other. That's the best that can be offered, is tolerance. And that's a terrible best solution. No wonder we can't figure this out. No wonder it's not getting any better. Because if you think about tolerating, you know, just, I don't want to fight, so we're going we're gonna to just agree to disagree and, and tolerate the existence of the other. There's, a, there's an eventual level you hit where that's patronizing, right? Where it's like, oh, that's what you think? Okay. I tolerate you. It's like that's nothing. That's a, that's a, there's no reconciliation. There's no hope. There's no healing. There's no wholeness that comes from that. And so we just stay divided and we think that the absence of conflict means we're getting along. The gospel of Jesus Christ gives us the opportunity to act differently in this world, uniquely so, because God has been gentle with us. What does that mean in practice? Well, here's, here's, what I, here's what practically I think this means that we can think about over the next 12 months. The contribution, why we, our voice is needed. Because I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but there are times in the Bible where it says that God doesn't see things exactly the same way as his people. That's what we understand that sin is. Sin isn't just action, like when I mess up, I sin. But sin actually biblically is deeper than that. Sin is about kind of who we are. There's a brokenness in us that says, I know the right answer, I just don't do it. And what that skews is a lot of things, including the way we see the world. The way we see the world can be skewed without us even knowing it. Practical. I, you might want to write this down, I am not perfect. I'm very close. I'm so wise. I'm this close. My two teenage daughters remind me every day of just how close to amazing I am every moment. But I'm not perfect. And what I believe by that is that the scripture applies to me, for example, in the Old Testament when God looks at his people in Isaiah and says, you know, my thoughts aren't always your thoughts. And my ways aren't always your ways. Or when Paul writes in the New Testament and says that we as people of faith need to understand that we still see the world, Paul writes, dimly. We don't have complete understanding. 
and that therefore God one day when I am in heaven will look at me and go, hey, you know that sermon you gave? You really missed it. And I'm like, no, no, no. There were other ones I felt wishy-washy about. That one I felt abundantly clear on. And he's like, I know. And you abundantly missed it. You abundantly missed the whole point. I believe that will be the case for me. And I don't mean to burst any of your bubbles. But not one of you is perfect either. And nor is your viewpoint on the world. And that that confessional viewpoint is met by a God of grace who doesn't pound us into non-existence because we don't get it right, but it's a God who is gentle with us in response, who responds graciously, who keeps reaching out to us, who keeps offering us second chances, who keeps molding us, who keeps shaping us, who never gives up on us. And what that means is that I believe you and I are called to be Christians who have very real convictions about this world and how to live, about what we want to see in our nation and how we want to get there. You should have convictions that you do not apologize for, and yet you must hold and balance those convictions with the understanding that with every single one of them, you may be wrong. And as confessional people, there should be nothing shocking about that statement. That's the unique thing. That's why we don't tolerate people. I can tolerate you. No. It's why it is that we sit there and hopefully have the humility to keep listening, to keep engaging, to keep sharing, to keep being co-teachers and co-learners, to keep being the people that, as David Brooks writes, as society continues in its individualism to tear itself apart at the extremes and at the seams, we are to be the menders and the weavers who come in exhibiting a different way of being because we hold our views and our convictions with gentleness, with meekness, with humility. And our nation needs us in the months to come. It is not going to be an option to sit on the sidelines and hibernate for the next 12 months. And it is going to be hard. But the church and both the left and the right in politics and the left and the right in the church are going to be part of the brigade that get behind their walls and lob hand grenades at each other out of a sense of moral purity. And there is a different way. May we have the faith to hold our convictions with humility with gentleness, with meekness. May we reflect in these divided times how it is God treats us in our incompleteness. And we will see the flourishing of our city, of our nation, and our world. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.